Thank you, Linda, and good morning, everyone. Uh, we're in 1 Samuel again, uh, the first reading um, that was read for us, uh, page 237. Well worth having that open in front of you if you've got a Bible there in the pew or your phone or, or something as we look at this uh, together. And uh, there'll be a bit of an outline coming up on the screen as we um, look through this chapter. Uh, if I was to try and sum up uh, the testimony about our King Jesus that the scriptures give us, it would be this verse from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save us completely, those who come to God through him. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. That is the testimony about our King, Jesus. He is a complete saviour. He is our rescuer. And as we return to 1 Samuel together this morning, uh, we come to a chapter that I think is written to convince our heart of that truth to convince our heart that our King can indeed save. And that's incredibly good news to know that he is a sure saviour. I think it's incredibly good news unless, of course, you are someone who thinks you've got life covered on your own, uh, who thinks you've got a life cornered, that there's no part of life or your experience of life that is beyond you and beyond your power to control. Uh, If that's you, I don't think there'll be much encouragement for you. But for the rest of us, which as I suspect all of us, If we accept that there are things that are too strong for us, then this is incredibly good news. He is able to save us completely. And so let me ask you, as you think about your own life and the details of your life and how you approach it, do you trust that Jesus can help you? Uh, The claim that a Christian gospel, and indeed the claim that a Christian would make of their own life, is this. Jesus is my saviour. I I need a saviour. Jesus is my saviour. That's the Christian testimony But I want you to test the claim uh, when it comes to your own life and how you approach life. What does that trust actually look like in the details of your life? Uh, Do you actually, when troubles come, do you actually trust that he can save you? Uh, And I I ask that uh, because there's a a legitimate question to be asked when it comes to Jesus being the saviour. Why do you have confidence in him? Why do you trust that he can Because even in Jesus' own time on earth, the the questions were asked about his uh, capability to do that. Uh, One, if you remember, as Jesus was uh, speaking, was our words with authority and was performing incredible uh, miracles, uh, this was asked of him. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, And then this, uh, again, after more miracles, isn't that just Joseph's son? How can he save us? Uh, And yet the consistent testimony all the way through the scriptures is that God's promised rescue of a world like ours, a world under the judgment of death, is that that rescue is going to come by Jesus alone and no other way. And so if you have confidence in that, let me ask you again, as you, as you try to live in this world, as you navigate the details of the things that face you in the day-to-day of life, do you believe that Jesus can save you? There are things that we face in this broken world or that we will face if we haven't already that are too strong for us. Uh, there are things that make us afraid. There are things that cause anxiety in us that we can't simply overcome with some sort of strategy. There are relationships that we experience that are tricky and complex and fraught and broken. And then there is the ultimate enemy, the enemy that our other reading, Hebrews 2, spoke of, that, that our life is frail and that it's fleeting, that we die. Where do you go when troubles come? Do you go to Jesus in such moments? Now, if we don't go to King Jesus in the small troubles and fears that we face in the day-to-day of life, 
I suspect it may well be because we're not sure we can trust him when the big troubles come. And so my goal today as we look at 1 Samuel 11 is simply to encourage your heart from the scriptures that Jesus our King can help, that he can save completely in the small things and in the giant troubles that are, yes, way beyond us. I want you to know from his word, as Hebrews 7 says, that he can save you completely. And uh, in knowing that, I want you to set your heart to trust him. And we're going to do that simply by looking at 1 Samuel 11. I hope you have it open there in front of you, because it, it captures for us a moment in the unfolding story of God's plan to send a king to rescue us. Uh, I want us to see in his people Israel, in their tendency to mistrust the king that they were given, our own hearts and our own tendency to do that. And yet I want us to see God's gracious plan to send a king to save us anyway. And so let's have a look. 1 Samuel 11. And again, some backstory if you've not been with us. God's people uh, are increasingly surrounded by real and present dangers. Samuel has led God's people well, and yet he's old, and his days as leader are numbered, and the people know that. And so we're told back in chapter 8, they demand a king like the nations who will fight their battles for them. Now, God, in, in graciousness, gives them a king, even though he is their king, even though he is the one who's rescued them along the way. And he does it, we're told, because he's heard their cry for help. And so the king is anointed. King Saul is, is anointed king of Israel. And, and we, we read back in, uh, last week in chapter 10, all the people said, long live the king. Here is our king. He will fight our battles. All seems well. And yet at the end of chapter 10, you remember if you've got it open there in front of you, have a look at verse 27. Uh, these are, for me, the equivalent of, if you've ever seen the Muppet show, uh, and you have to be a certain age to have seen the Muppet show, there was no normal Muppets, and then there were Stadler and Waldorf, I think they were called, who would be off on the sides, and they're always booing and hissing and, and complaining about things. Well, here we have the Muppet, Stadler and Waldorf. Can this man actually save us? Everyone's saying, long live the king, and they're going, do you, do you reckon he can save us? And it's the question that's going to dominate the chapter. And what we're going to see is that their concerns are not isolated. No sooner do they ask that question than it's put to the test. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. God's people are under attack. And again, I think in this, we see the fear that was driving Israel to seek a king to fight their battles. The, we, we, we learned a few chapters ago, the Philistines are camped to the west and now the Ammonites are besieging the east. They're, they're increasingly surrounded and, uh, and it, it, while the Ammonites here seem like a new threat, they're, they're not really. Uh, they've actually got a tragic association with Israel. If you look back through the Old Testament, here is a people who were formed out of a brutal crime within God's own family, God's own people. And since that day, there have been a people utterly opposed to Israel. They were opposed to them entering the Promised Land, and since they've been in the Promised Land, it's been a constant skirmish between these two peoples. It's not an exaggeration to say they hate Israel. They are a real and present enemy. And if you want to see something of their character, have a look at verse 2. As the people of Jabesh, part of Israel, try to make some sort of treaty with them, the response they get is basically this, we plan to mock you and humiliate you and defeat you. And the elders of Jabesh hear this and they know this enemy is far too strong for them. It's a tragic scene 
And as it goes on, as news of this enemy uh, within uh, the promised land uh, goes around Israel, Israel, we're told, weeps. And it's not a surprise. I mean, what else are you going to do when you face an enemy that's far too strong for you? Uh, Perhaps the questioners back in chapter 10, verse 27, uh, weren't far off the mark. Perhaps the king can't save. But watch. And as we watch, watch how Israel responds to this threat. And as we see their response, consider what they already know to be true as they respond. They know God has anointed a king to fight their battle. They know he has done that because he hears their cry for help. And yet watch them as they seem to try almost everything but to go to the king for help. And as we watch them, I do want to encourage you to consider what you know to be true of your king, Jesus. Consider where we go when facing the things that are indeed too strong for us, despite what we know about our king. Israel facing their enemy, they they try in verses 1 to 5 two different strategies. You you see the first of them in verse 1. Essentially, it's this. Perhaps we can make peace with the enemy, some sort of treaty. All the men of Jabesh said to him, that's Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. Now, what are they doing? Here are people that a few chapters ago said, we want a king like the nations. Now they've sort of upgraded that plan. In fact, we may as well just have the nation's king as our king. That's essentially what they're saying. Nahash, you be our king. It's striking that there's no mention of King Saul. They've just joyfully proclaimed him king. They've submitted to him. They've said, you fight our battles. It seems that the scoundrels of chapter 10, verse 27 aren't alone at all. They too doubt the kingdom saved. They see an enemy too strong for them, but they don't seek the king. And so they try to make peace with this enemy. What's behind that strategy? Well, I think in the end, it's, it's a concession, isn't it? As they see the power of the enemy, they say, you're too strong for us. We may as well try to live at peace with you. I wonder if you see your own heart in this. Consider what you know of your king, Jesus. And yet when troubles come, we don't seek the king. Uh, we just try to make peace with that which is too strong for us. So let me give you an example, and it's pro- probably the ultimate example, and we've heard this in the other reading that we, uh, we've just had, Hebrews chapter 2, uh, what 1 Corinthians 15 calls our greatest enemy, death. Of course it's too strong for us. I mean, what does our world do in the face of an enemy that strong? Well, if you functionally believe there is no rescue from death, then you try to make peace with it, try to be at peace with it. Uh, One of the leading exponents of this approach in our world was uh, the Swiss-born psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who uh, is hugely influential in in thinking about how we're meant to view death and the death of those that we love. Uh, She wrote a book called On Death and Dying. Here's what she said about death. The moment of death is neither frightening nor powerful. It is peaceful cessation. It's like a raindrop returning to the river. Uh, It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? In in this attempt to be at peace with this thing that's far too strong for us. But I want to humbly suggest to you today that she is talking utter rubbish. And I know that from the experience of sitting in the homes of many families over the years. Many people making preparations for a funeral of one that they love that Kubler-Ross, for all her smarts, is talking rubbish. And I suspect you'll know it too, if death has ever affected you. It is not merely peaceful cessation. 
every human heart knows what the Bible says of death, that it is monstrous, unnatural, and it is an enemy. The Bible never calls us to make a treaty with it, to call an enemy a friend. Uh, More on that in a moment as we see God's response to this enemy here in 1 Samuel 11. But given the failure of their sort of treaty plan, they they come up with a different strategy in verse 3. Do you see it there? The elders of Jabesh said to him, that's again Nahash, give us seven days so that we can send messengers throughout Israel. And if no one comes to rescue us, then we'll surrender. So off they go, not, not to the king to rescue, they'll go anywhere in the land, find a rescue somewhere, some sort of rescuer. And, and we're told, verse 4, that they, they do reach King Saul's hometown, but that seems a coincidental rather than deliberate. Uh, you see that because there's no response from the locals. Quick, let's go get the king. No one mentions the king. Why does no one go to the king for rescue? Uh, it is, in, in the world of social media, this is a... a, a a facepalm emoji kind of moment. But before we deploy the facepalm emoji, hesitate. Let's look in the mirror. When the fear grows, when the troubles come, where do you go? What strategies do you deploy? Uh, what, in the, word of, the words of uh, the book of Isaiah, what idols do we think are going to keep us safe? Do you know what uh, Isaiah says of those rescuers that we might reach out to? Though one cries out to them, they cannot answer. They cannot save us from the troubles. And yet we go there. Now, where do you go? Perhaps to grasp at self-sufficiency or some sort of attempt to control the situation or, or some sort of coping mechanism or at least an escape or a distraction. We see the fear in the men of Jabesh here. We see their enemy... We see their failure to go to the king who can fight their battle and I think we see ourselves. Well, back to our story. How will the king, God's king, respond to this danger and indeed to the reluctance of the people to come to him for rescue? Well, you see there, verse 5, the vain search reaches the hometown of the newly anointed king and, and we're told just then Saul shows up. It's, a, it's another little narrative pointer that God is in control of this scene. He, he then basically places the king in front of them but it's all pretty inauspicious isn't it it's it's not like if they were to try and make a movie of of one samuel that here the king arrives on the scene you'd expect a big swell of music but there's nothing grand about it Uh, he's back with the farm animals i mean back in in chapter nine it was the donkeys that he was obsessed with and now it's the oxen despite the fact that he's been proclaimed king nothing seems to have changed for this guy Even now, he has to ask them what they're crying about. It's all a bit strange. A terrible enemy is coming at them. Saul is anointed to fight their battle. But even here in his hometown, they don't look to him for help. Uh, Interestingly, and I don't want to make too much of this, but I am struck that Jesus in his own hometown is similarly disregarded. But the king here, King Saul, seems, well, inactive, just as inactive as the people, He still hasn't dealt with the Philistines, which is what God commanded him to do. He's still focused on the donkeys. Well, actually, he's upgraded to oxen now. What will drive the king to action for the people? Well, again, it's not the king. It is God who hears the cry of the people, who stirs them into action. Do you see it there, verse 6? When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. Uh, 
If you want to know how God feels about that which stands against his people, here it is, anger, white hot anger. And again, of course, we see that with Jesus. In the face of the clear and present danger of death, Jesus declares in John's Gospel, he says, don't be afraid. And then he has the audacity to say, it won't end in death. And yet when he comes face to face with his great enemy of death at, at the graveside of his own friend Lazarus, uh, do you know what his response is? He groans with anger. Well, here in verse 6 is God's response to that which stands opposed to his people. He is stirred to action. And in the verses that follow, the, the, whole, the entire resources of God's people is going to be deployed to defeat this enemy. Nothing is left in the shed. And in the verses that follow, we hear both the news of the rescue and then the rescue itself. Now, first, you see the news being announced. Have a look at verse 9. More messengers are sent out, but this time it's not vain or futile. Uh, they're sent back to Jabesh with, with news of rescue. Say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. Can you imagine getting that news? You think all hope is lost. You've tried all the strategies. There's this enormous enemy there, right there, ready to take you, and they're utterly opposed to you, and you're told, before midday tomorrow, you will be rescued. We're told they're elated. I bet they were. A rescue against all odds. But it's not just the news of the rescue. Then the rescue itself comes, and it's quite a moment, isn't it? This huge army is gathered there in verse 10. But then a trap is set. Do you notice that for the enemy? Uh, the men of Jabesh sort of, sort of pretend to surrender. They say, well, we'll surrender tomorrow and then you can do what you want. But this surrender to a complacent enemy turns into a complete rout of the enemy. And victory is won here, well, to be honest, with the most bloody of battles. What we're seeing here in this victory, what God did on that day for the people of Jabesh, because he heard their cry for help through his king, is just a hint just a pale shadow of what he would do on the day to come, not just for one nation, but every nation, through his king, our king, Jesus. And on that day, not just the full resources of one nation, but the full resources of heaven were deployed to bring the victory. God so loved us that he sends his son that we need not perish. And the means of victory is the same. I wonder if you uh, noticed that. A, A trap was set the day that Jesus conquered death. He, what appeared to be a humiliating surrender as he walked up that hill and, and gave himself up to death, as he, he walked into the enemy's attack seemingly defenceless, he utterly destroys death. Hebrews chapter 2. Since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now pause there. Feel the elation of that news of victory reaching us. That victory is ours because the king has heard our cry for help. And I know this enemy of death makes us afraid. And I don't want for a minute as we gather this morning to diminish that feeling. This is a real and present enemy. I hate death. I am heartbroken by it, and I'm sure you are too. But see your king, the one you can cry out to. Death takes its best shot at King Jesus, and it lost. 
No one in history has ever beaten death. That's not how it works. The odds are completely stacked in death's favour. Death always wins, but not this time. Uh, Before noon on the first day of the week, the stone is rolled away and he walks out of the trap of death, utterly victorious. Our gospel is news that our king has entered the strong man's house and he has smashed open the doors forever. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Uh, The question throughout our passage is, I think, actually, the question at the heart of the universe, a universe like ours, broken and under the sentence of death. Here's the question. We heard it back in chapter 10, verse 27. Can this one actually save us? Or repeated in verse 3 of chapter 11. What do we do if no answer comes? Then comes the glorious answer. 11, verse 9. Send news. Salvation has come. 11, verse 13. On this day, the Lord has rescued us. Can you think of a more important question than can the king save you? The gospel of our king, Jesus, gives a defiant yes. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. But just as we finish, hear this well, and I think this is really important. What if you heard in the testimony of Hebrews chapter 2 when we read it, uh, what verse 8 said, speaking of King Jesus, it said this, at present we don't see everything subject to him. And I find this so helpful. The Bible is clear that at the present time, that is between the moment that Jesus defeated death on the cross and and the moment when he will come back and be king of all, at, at the present we don't see everything subject to him as it will be then. That resonates, doesn't it? I know that personally, that there are times that I have seen death is not yet subject in the present. Uh, just upstairs in my office in a, on a bookshelf, I have two rocks to remind me of that moment where I live in the present. There are two rocks. One I picked up the day uh, my best friend died and one ten years later on the day. And they remind me that at present I don't see everything subject. And I know you'll know that feeling too, some acutely. At present we don't experience everything subject to him and, and so it's not a surprise that our hearts grow fearful and we find ourselves running to other rescue strategies and when the enemy comes we do weep and yet God weeps with us but here's the difference of the gospel of our King Jesus. Uh, in the words of Thessalonians, we don't weep as those without hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him, those who have come to rescue through him. And if we can trust the king with this big thing, we can trust him with everything. This week, this year and forever. And while we wait for the king to return, when we will at last see all things subject to him, we're meant to set our hearts to keep crying out for help. As troubles come, we, we, we know where to go. We, we cry out as the church has cried out since his resurrection. We cry, Maranatha. We cry, come, King Jesus. Now I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to lead us straight into the Lord's Supper uh, together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know our cry, that you hear it and you are mighty to save. And we thank you that we can trust you to save completely because of the Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you will set our hearts to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, just a moment, we're going to sing a song which is actually a song to actually allow us to 
say the words uh, that really point to what the Lord's Supper is about uh, to one another in song. But just before we do that, uh, really in anticipation of this meal, let me draw your attention to the final verses of 1 Samuel 11. And I think we have a meal just like the meal we're about to celebrate. Uh, As victory is completed in this scene, we're we're told in verse 15 of 1 Samuel, they they hold a massive celebration meal to to mark the moment. And and really, that's what the church has been doing in the Lord's Supper since Jesus' resurrection. And what I want you to notice is they do three things, and it's the three things that we're about to do. In this scene, as God's people in the aftermath of the king's victory, here's the three things they do. Firstly, they repent. Uh, if you look there in verse 12, it starts with a little bit of blame shifting. They say, you know those people back in 1027 who doubted the king, let's go get them. But actually that doesn't happen because it's all of them. It's all of them who have doubted him. And so they're called to repent, to renew. That's the second thing they do, to renew their trust in the king. They, they go to Gilgal and they renew the kingship. They say, you are our king and we trust you. And again, as we share this meal, that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're claiming again his forgiveness and not trusting him. And we're saying, we know you can save us. Here's the final thing we, they do, and it's what we're going to do together. They celebrate. Uh, we're told, and it's a sort of an understatement, but it says they had a great celebration. Celebrating uh, the victory. And, and really, that's what we're doing in this meal. We're, it's our defiant protest to our great enemy that says the king has won. We celebrate greatly now, but how much more will be our celebration when the king returns? And so let's sing together, uh, Behold the Lamb. It's an opportunity to stand and really 